Welcome to the 217th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have a show that is designed to make your life easier. We are going to be talking about a new product from Lutron, new products from Wise, Comcast, thinking about your health. MediaTek has launched some rich IoT chips we're going to explain. Plus, GM, the car manufacturer, is now doing one of the best practices in security. Yay! And it is the one-year anniversary of GDPR, the European General Data Protection Regulation. So we're going to talk about what that has meant for Europe, tech companies, and us. And we've got a lot of little news from Google, Savant, Lenovo, Arduino, and more. Our guest this week is Zach Zapala, who is CEO of Particle. He's going to be talking about the big mistakes people make when they scale out their IoT deployments. And we're going to have a message from our sponsor, Dell Technologies. So it's a jam-packed show, and we're going to kick it off with the message from one of our other sponsors, Nordic Semiconductor. Kickstart your short-range wireless application ideas with the NRF52840. It is the most advanced and flexible short-range wireless solution available today. The NRF52840 is a highly advanced, ultra-low-power system-on-a-chip that can meet just about any requirement in ultra-low-power wireless applications. It has broad protocol support, including Bluetooth 5, and all of its features, Bluetooth LE, Thread, Zigbee, Ant, and 2.4 GHz proprietary radios with protocol concurrency options. The NRF52840 can support the most demanding applications with its Cortex M4F CPU and 1 megabyte of flash and 256 kilobytes of RAM. Plus, it's stacked with on-chip peripherals including... USB, CryptoCell, Quad SPI, and NFC. Everyone knows the software makes the difference, and the NRF52840 is backed up with an unrivaled selection of comprehensive SDKs covering a vast range of applications to get you building tomorrow's great products. Find out more at www.nordicsemi.com NRF52840. Okay, Kevin. I am super excited about this product. We saw it at CES and it was amazing. Everybody who has smart connected light bulbs and is upset with the fact that if you turn the switch off for those bulbs, your bulbs stop working. There's now a solution. And it's an easy solution. So easy. Lutron has made the Aurora, which is a device that you're going to stick on your traditional light switches. And then it basically converts them to a smart switch without any wiring, any screwdrivering, anything like that. And I I am so excited about this because I'm about to move into a rental house and I have Philips Hue light bulbs that I'm going to want to connect this to. Then I can basically, in my rental house, have smart lighting that doesn't break when someone turns off the light switch, which is... Yeah. What That's everyone key. should want. That is key. <laughs> this is this is interesting because as you said, there's no wiring involved, right? Traditionally you'd have to swap out a switch to make it smart. But this literally has a little I call it like a plastic round part that goes over your existing light switch. And then on top of that, you basically snap in a uh, rotary 
dimmer knob, yeah, dial. And the product has a coin size battery that lasts for up to three years. And that's it. You just snap it on and you're good. Yeah. So you can turn on your lights from the switch and nobody will be like, ah, you've broken my functionality. And it also helps because people who don't know about smart homes or who do not want to talk to like Madame May and tell her to turn on and off the lights. This is wonderful. So the downside to this is that it only works with Hue light bulbs and you have to have a Hue bridge. You do not, however, have to have a Lutron bridge. So yeah, you win some, you lose some. Yeah. They use Zigbee for this. So you have to have some kind of, some kind of bridge box. If you already have one, I mean, it's really a non-issue. The other thing, I questioned the price at $40 a pop because there's not much to this thing. So I always look at things like that and like, I'm, I'm paying all this for this piece of plastic and a battery and a little radio, but yeah, it saves you a ton of time and it is cheaper than a regular smart switch. And I would say, I mean, again, as someone who's moving into a rental and I'm sure we're going to have a show all about gadgets that Stacy has put into our rental unit to make it behave as, <laughs> as intelligently as possible. But as someone in that position, I was actually thinking about, man, I have become dependent on my smart switches that I had throughout my home. And what am I going to do to replace that? Now, the answer is, I guess, buy a bunch of expensive few bulbs, but they're, they're cheaper now. They're still like $15 a bulb. So it's still an investment when you're talking about like having like four downlights or something. But then you never have to get up from the couch. Yay. Yeah, yeah. And you can automate them. Yay. So and this should actually work even if like your home internet goes down. Yes, it should. So mm -hmm. I'm actually getting some of these. So in about a week or two, when I finally moved into my new house, hallelujah, y'all, I will try them out, write up a review and tell you guys about it on the podcast because whew, I'm excited. Also, in lighting news. Wise, the company that is famous for its $20 camera and the fact that it makes profits on that, has launched light bulbs. And basically, with the Wise light bulbs, you can buy a four pack for 30 bucks, which I did. So I am going to try these out. They will ship in the middle of June. And unfortunately, they will not work with the Philips Hue Lutron setup that I've just discussed. So I'm kind of no. like, <laughs> sigh. But Wise does now work with Google Assistant. It does. Um, and this actually just happened earlier this week. And some people may go into their Google Assistant settings and not find Wise in there to link to their account because it's a staged rollout. But luckily, I don't know, I was on the early list, I guess, because it showed up for me earlier this week. And I linked it up fine, like I would with anything else. But... I think there's still some work that needs to be done because in testing it with my um, Nest Hub, I have to call it the Nest Hub now instead of the Google Home Hub or whatever they, we used to call it. When I tell the Google Assistant to show like my driveway where I have a wise cam, sometimes it takes five seconds and it works. Sometimes it takes 15 seconds and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. So I think there's some optimizations that really need to happen. However, I'm thrilled that it's finally here. And I would expect those optimizations to happen and things to get better, you know, as again, staged rollout usually means they're like, what is demand for this? How can we optimize for this? And we'll see that. Right. I presume that when these bulbs come out, because it's all pre-orders right now, I expect automatically work with Google Assistant because that integration is already there. We'll have to see. And just to, to be clear, uh, those bulbs that you ordered, those are tunable white LEDs, not color or anything like that. Yes. 
But for the price, I was like, oh, yeah. heck yeah. They're like less they're seven fifty a bulb, basically, which is an yeah. excellent price. We'll see yeah. how long they last. They're only in the A nineteens, so if you've for got now. for now. And I should also mention for people, because Wise is they're on a roll right now. They just launched their sensor kit that we talked about last week. All of these work on a proprietary sub one gigahertz protocol. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's 915 megahertz or what they're using beyond sub one gigahertz, but it's not going to work with like Bluetooth or Zigbee or things like that. So that is a a little bit of a bummer. Your trade-off here is, you know, oh, it's so cheap. So you don't need a hub for this. It connects directly to Wi-Fi. So yay for that. But it will work with like the sensors. And basically it's, you can use like normal things like scheduling, vacation modes. You can also group the lights in the Wise app so you can control them as one. There's no light switch at the moment, but we'll get there. And it works with Ift. So I wonder, actually, you'd have latency that everybody hates, but I wonder if you could actually connect these via Ift to like the Hue stuff. I'll have to play around with all that. Don't know. So... We'll see what happens here, but smoke and hot deal on the wise light bulbs. If you're in the wise world, maybe you try these out. I know I will. For cheap, why not? I mean, these these could replace my cheapy Cree bulbs that I tend to buy. Yeah. I know you said cheap, but I'm going to say creep, as in Comcast is creeping on your health, y'all. CNBC reported this week that Comcast was working on some sort of device that was going to be focused on people's health. They said it was a smart speaker, but Comcast later clarified that it's actually going to be a sensor. And what it sounds like, it's a motion detection sensor. And it's going to use algorithms to determine, like, is someone moving around the house? Yes, that means they're not dead. Are they moving in this range? Yes, that means they're probably pretty healthy. And we've talked about this a couple times on the show, but there are definite research studies that show things like, hey, how many times a day a person goes to the bathroom is an indicator of how healthy they are. And so you could see Comcast pulling data like that from the motion sensor to give some sort of health score or let people know that their loved ones are okay without involving a camera or anything weird. Right. I mean, it is definitely health focused because even Comcast has said that, you know, they're going to pitch this towards people with disabilities, older folks, et cetera. And it reportedly has talked to large hospitals, according to Engadget, about using the devices uh, in hospitals as well. So I, you know, I, I don't think mainstream consumers that are healthy, healthy are going to, or young are going to glom onto this. But hey, what? there's a huge need for this, especially as our population gets older here in the U.S. Yeah. And I actually get, I field a couple questions from people when they find out what I do about aging in place. Like they're like, what can I get for my parents? So I know that they're okay. Mm -hmm. We may not want them in our house as a relatively younger and healthier person, but we may want them for our loved ones and not having a camera is going to be nice, but you'll have to wait. Comcast is going to start testing this at the end of 2019. And the release date is probably 2020 or possibly even later. The other question that's raises in my mind is, holy cow, what kind of privacy rules will Comcast have to follow? And look at how Comcast is like really mm-hmm. building services in the smart home. I have long said that they have been very forward looking and very good at offering compelling services. And this is possibly another one. So yeah, they've definitely been branching out. I just 
don't know. I mean, and I could be, this is arguable, of course. They have a stigma from their cable operations. You know, the customer service and service in general is not good. That is arguable. I'm sure many people are happy with, with Comcast. That's fine. But I wonder if they can overcome that on people who have that belief. And also people worry about how much of their data Comcast already gets. Yeah. You know, between your internet use and maybe streaming TV, et cetera, do you really want now get very personal data going to them with, with health? Well, I will let you know because, again, in about two weeks, I'm going to become a Comcast customer. I say two weeks. It's actually next week. Ah, you guys. Oh, my. This week's podcast will be produced in Austin. Actually, next week's will be produced in Austin, but by the time it goes out, I will be in Seattle. So exciting. Okay, yeah. but I will become a Comcast customer, so I'll let you know how I feel about it. I'm Comcast. dying to know how your experience goes. <laughs> Comcast, you're on notice. They're All in my right. backyard here in Philadelphia. So Yes, and you're a Verizon Fios customer, I believe. Yes, I am. <laughs> All right. Also this week in chip news, because I can't leave the chips out of this, MediaTek, which is a Taiwanese chip company that came to prominence for making really good SOCs at a lower price than Qualcomm, basically. (laughs) They have done really well in the smartphone market. And now they've announced what they call a rich IoT program. And what this is, is a bunch of their chipsets are going to have the ability to do AI on them at a lower battery consumption. And this is going to be for voice. So AI algorithms associated with voice, with object recognition and computer vision, and then also for powering displays. So all of this is the smart home stuff. It's designed for, again, low battery consumption, cheap pricing, and the ability to have some sort of intelligence at the edge. All this means from a consumer perspective is we're going to see a lot of devices come on the market with lower prices. Yeah, just to give an indication, though, because I followed them in the smartphone and the tablet market for years, if you take a look at two very similar products, whether it's a phone or tablet, doesn't matter, one has a Qualcomm chip, one has a MediaTek chip, you're probably looking at at least a 25% cost difference on the low side for the MediaTek product. Wow. Yeah, so... Oh, yeah, at least. Cheap displays coming your way. Thank you, MediaTek. All right. So that is that news. And let's talk about security, specifically security for vehicles and best practices. So one of the best practices for security and patching is over-the-air updates. When I when people ask me, like, what can I do to make sure my connected devices are secure? You know, I tell them all this stuff about, hey, Google and see how they react to, you know, problems or vulnerabilities. Do they have a bug bounty program? Do they have hard-coded passwords? And I always ask, and I'm like, they should have over-the-air updates. Well, GM is now saying that it will offer over-the-air updates to most of its vehicles by 2023. I think Uh this is good. I do drive a Tesla, and it updates its software all the time. Most automakers have not done this, and in part, it's because they were worried about connecting cars to the internet because it introduces... I mean, it is a service area of attack, and it could be scary. Yes. I know you have your Tesla, and you've had many software updates and haven't had issues and so on and so forth. I see Tesla as a leader in this new connected car industry, and they've proven themselves to be very capable. I am a little leery when GM and others, I'm sure there will be other car manufacturers, get into this space 
I just don't have the faith that it will work properly all the time. And it needs to. And I say that because just look at, not quite the same situation, but look at the aircraft, the Boeing issues that we've had, that software introduced problems, right? I would say in something like that, what the challenge, that's not an over-the-air Correct. That's problem. what I'm saying. That's not a, to say. Yep. That's, well, it's a testing problem. And I think yes. the capability is really important. The challenge associated with that capability is twofold. One, you have to secure that connection. Two, if you can change the functionality of a vehicle anytime you want, that is an added responsibility on QA. It's an added mm-hmm. responsibility in terms of life cycle, like software lifecycle management. And hopefully GM has the capabilities and it is aware of that. So it is right. kind of like Boeing. Cause like now we're seeing with the Boeing 747, 737 Max, we're talking about like, oh, they were unaware that this update actually changed the functionality of this particular button. And I'm like, nope, nope. When you change the functionality of a machine like that, you, you need to understand what every line of code does and how it Regression affects everything testing. else. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You're right. It's more about the, not the delivery mechanism. It is more about the testing. I I don't know. Something just skeeves me out about this. I I guess I just don't have the faith in a GM. And and that's that's a personal thing. I mean, And that's something uh, all of these companies are going to have to deal with. And if, since we're talking about it, I'll bring up the fact that there was an opinion article in the New York Times this week all about driver data and how customers and consumers who buy cars are not aware of this or not aware of the type of data that a car can gather. And this is by a man named Bill Hanvey, who is president and chief executive of the Auto Care Association. And the, the article is actually called Your Car Knows When You Gain Weight, which I guess it does because they do have sensors in the seats now that they detect do. if you're there. I don't know if I, I'm like, do I want my car to be like, you should drive me less and walk more? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but the point there is like, hey, when you have over-the-air updates, you also have this two-way communication where your car could be like tattling on you in a way that yeah. normally you had to stick those OBD port monitors in there. Yeah. I also wonder, I mean, this is for cars that have built-in connectivity. So it's not like you will connect your car to your home internet and get the, the download and the update there. Right. So I don't know how big these updates can be. I mean, and, and you probably, does Tesla actually tell you or you just... Say it just shows you, hey, I updated your software. Um, sometimes it'll tell you. I think it gives a time estimate. Like this will take about forty minutes. Some of the mm. updates are quite considerable, but Tesla pays for my connectivity. Yes, and I don't know that GM does. Well, they, I have a Chevy Volt. They would Volt. have to for something like this. One would hope. I would love <laughs> to see them spell that out because I I don't use the LTE that's integrated into my Chevy Volt. Um, so I get software updates. When I go to the dealer, which is very rare, I mean, once a year I get an oil change and rotate the tires every, however often I don't drive that much. So, but I'd like to know, do I have to pay for that if I'm paying for the LTE service? Yikes. All right. Well, we'll hope they do that. And speaking of data, your car sharing data, other things sharing data, your light bulb sharing data, it is the first anniversary of the general data protection regulations from the EU. And... It's time to say, gosh, what's happened? The answer, a lot. (laughs) (laughs) At least in the EU, not much here in the US. Just as a refresher, GDPR basically gave 
people rights around their data. And you as an individual or as a citizen of the EU basically could say, hey, stop collecting my data. What data are you collecting? You could request it. You could ask companies to change data that wasn't right. You could retroactively pull access to your data. You could do a lot of things. The EU has published data about the number of cases and things like that associated with this legislation. So they polled citizens. And as of March 2019, two thirds of EU citizens polled said they knew what GDPR was. They about a third, a little over a third knew what it entailed. And over half said, yes, they know that there is an agency out there trying to protect their data rights. What that means in terms of cases is they had a lot. A lot. They had, <laughs> I was like, 281,000. <laughs> yeah. And these cases are just complaints. Maybe, uh, maybe the customer found that their data wasn't being encrypted because that's required as part of GDPR as well. Yeah. Like a half of them were just like complaints. Almost 90,000 of them were data breach notifications. And then the rest were other. I don't know what other are. <laughs> right. But two thirds of those cases have actually been closed, I presume, to people's satisfaction because only 0.1% of total cases have been appealed and the rest are still ongoing. So this is, this is great because it shows how active these restrictions are being recognized by consumers, are being questioned. I mean, they should be questioning the, the, when they, when they sense an issue. I think it's great. It's, it's far more active than I expected, I guess I should say. Yeah. And I haven't seen a wholesale stoppage of the, you know, European economy. So also good there. As part of this, and maybe because, maybe because it's Brad Smith and he's being a thought leader here, but Brad Smith over at Microsoft has called for the U.S. to implement its own version of GDPR. And Apple has also called for this. And that's now Microsoft and Apple saying, Hey, this law isn't terrible. Let's get something like that here. And the big things that they're focused on is you have to have a reason to process the data. You can't just gather data for the fun of it. So, you know, right. like your car can't just be like, this is how much someone weighs. Personal data must be encrypted. People and consumers have a right to a copy of their data and they have a right to ask for their data to be deleted. I'm all for it. I'm not going to lie. No, same here. I, I think it's great. I think the bigger... Well, a sticking point, there's probably several, is who enforces the rules here in the U.S. Well, in the EU, they created a separate agency who does that. So I would imagine we would have some sort of federal agency, or maybe it's the FTC. I know there's lots of debate. That's the thing. Depending on which side of the aisle you sit on, it's uh, the FTC or is it not the FTC? I hate the creation of new government agencies, but the FTC can be like really held over by politics. Yep. But something is better than nothing. I don't know. We're not going to solve this on this podcast. Imagine if we did, though. (laughs) Imagine if we did. But there is something you can do. Not about GDPR, but about enforcing privacy rules. Mozilla has created a petition calling on Amazon to make sure all the smart home products or all the connected products sold on its site come with a privacy policy because not everything does. I think that's actually not an unreasonable thing. I think having Amazon or a federal legislation actually helps because if it's Amazon – What happens is 
you'll have to click through or see a privacy policy associated with the device. And if everyone has one, it's not a competitive advantage for people who don't, whose process is maybe a little bit simpler. So forcing everyone to behave according to the same rules is actually a nice thing to do. You know who's not part of this conversation? A company we're going to talk about a little bit next. Google? That would be correct. I'll take what is Google for 500, Alex. Yay. Well, let's talk about Google. How about their new Glass? Google Glass. I saw the original one for crying out loud. Yes, the new one is for enterprises. It's fancier. It's cheaper. It's more battery efficient, I believe, and better. Just generally better. It's more better. It's more better. And in other little news bits, Savant, which is a... I always call it the Apple of smart home systems, like professional smart home systems. They have rolled out HomeKit support, including something pretty neat, which is circuit breaker control. Kevin, you want to explain why that's cool? So Savant already has uh, circuit breaker controls, but now they have a companion module that is HomeKit compatible. So like I'm assuming I could like when I'm swapping out switches and whatnot, instead of running up and down two flights of stairs to see if I switch the right breaker manually, I could turn a breaker off using HomeKit. Yes, that is my thought here too. And this was actually a feature, I feel like Savant launched it back at Cedia in 2017. And there were actually several of the professional Cedia's type installers who were messing around with circuit breaker boxes and control of those, in part because they were thinking about things like demand response and the future of electricity. And apparently really wealthy people like dedicated control of these things. I don't know, but it was a big deal. So yeah, this is, it's a nice product. It's a nice add-on to a nice system if you have it. And in fact, the HomeKit support does go beyond just circuit breaker bit. It works with light bulbs and their LED or DMX LED light strips and other things. So that's a broader solution for people who have HomeKit and Savant lighting. Yes. And there is a new smart clock in town, the Lenovo smart clock for Google. Mm-hmm. It's uh, pre-orders have already gone live, and this device ships on June second, seventy-nine dollars. I actually saw this at CES this year, uh, back in January, and I wondered about it. I thought it was just like a, a reference design or something when when I walked into the the exhibit, I guess I should say, for the press. But no, it's it was an actual product, and it's Lenovo's little smart clock. It's like uh, maybe a four-inch display. It is four-inch IPS screen. It looks like. The Lenovo smart display that I have, which is the 10 inch one, is just obviously it's smaller. It's not something you're going to watch a video on and do things you would do on a regular screen or a larger screen, but it does have a six watt speaker. You can add it to a home speaker group so you can listen to music and so on. It's got the microphone privacy switch that the Nest Hub has, which is cool. And yeah, I mean, it's just perfect size for somebody who doesn't want a larger display, especially one with a camera because this does not have one, on their nightstand. I mean, it's it's just a another Google Home product, just different form factor. Nice. Okay, and we've got a other tiny little bits of news. Tato, which is the a German smart thermostat maker, has launched a HomeKit-compatible smart AC controller. It's really for the UK and EU area, so it's not like something we're going to get here in the US, at least not today. But they make a nice-looking thermostat product. I mean, I, you, they do, I, and I'm, they make a nice yeah. radiator turning knob. They they make some really good-looking products. Yeah. So this um, basically, you can add AC controls to your home with this. 
So this will uh, work obviously with HomeKit, as we said, also Madam A, Google Assistant, and it's 90 pounds in the UK, at least per Amazon. So it's available there for 90 pounds. I don't know. I don't know. I guess that's roughly $110 here. Yeah, roughly, but it doesn't matter because you can't buy it here. So Not yet. this is our gift to our UK listeners. Final little bit of news is Arduino has more nano boards available. And we, we love our Arduino, the nano boards. The cheapest one is the nano every. It's a nine, it's actually $10. It's got a microcontroller. It's got a little bit of flash and a little bit of RAM. And <laughs> they also have the nano 33 IOT. It's $18. It has Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and also a microcontroller. It again, <laughs> slightly yeah. more flash and 32 yeah. kilobits of RAM. So we're yeah, getting up lots, there. Yeah, these are these are small to make, I guess, small products, projects, etc. Not a, a smart home system or anything like that. No, but these are the, I, I say these because we've got enough of our audience who's like, hey, let's play around with some stuff. So they have a two new B Bluetooth low energy boards as well. So you know, just check out the Arduino Nano boards if you're if you're hankering for a project and you want you don't need much, you just want to build something that does a little something and stops. All right, and now it is our favorite time of the week. It's time for the Internet of Things podcast hotline, where we listen to questions from you and try to give a good answer. The IoT podcast hotline is brought to you by Schlage. Schlage's wide variety of smart locks lets you create the smart home of your dreams. Learn more about Schlage's smart home solutions and compatibility with Amazon, Apple, Google Assistant, and more at schlage.com slash IoT. I do love these locks, and I cannot wait to get into my new home so I can actually try the encode lock, which is their Wi-Fi lock. Oh, it is about time. All right. So this week's voicemail is from Josh. Let's hear it. Hi, Stacy and Kevin. This is Josh up in Egan, Minnesota. Please feel free to use this on your show if you'd like. My question is uh, regarding automation. I really would like to be able to know with high degree of accuracy if people are in or not in a given room, in a bedroom, in a family room, wherever so that I can adjust lights, turn them on, turn them off, depending upon if there is anybody in that room. And I'm just wondering, what's the best solution for that? What uh, is the best combination of sensors or if there are special sensors to help with that kind of a problem? Uh, what is the best way to know if there is somebody in a room or not? Thank you so much for all your help. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Josh, this is something, man, <laughs> Kevin and I have been talking about this for years, like years and years. years. And we actually have some options for you, which is a surprise because we looked at this, you know, when you, when you left your voicemail, we were like, okay, we don't have anything great for him. We've got motion sensors, which will tell you that someone has entered a room and you can use it to turn on lights and AC and things like that. But it's kind of sucky if you want to do like personalization or something a little bit more granular. But we just discovered a new product by IntelliThings. We discovered RoomMe. It is a sensor that basically takes the Bluetooth readings from your phone and uses that to say, oh, Kevin's phone, thus Kevin has entered the room. And you can buy a starter kit for $124 and a sensor on its own without the starter kit is going to be $70. And what does this do? Well, it basically just says this smartphone has entered the room. 
it mounts on the ceiling. And I think it's actually kind of cool. What do you think, Kevin? I do. It, it reminds me of when I got excited about all the beacon technology several years back, which never really made it to the smart home. Yeah, we had talked about a company called Zuli. They actually made, they put beacons basically in smart outlets. And I was super excited about them and nothing. Yeah, it just hasn't happened. I mean, I think a lot of people have decided in, in, that want to do this. They're like, a motion sensor is fine. That tells me that somebody is in the room as opposed to what I think you and I both want is it tells me that a particular someone is in the room and then customizes automations and controls based on that person's personal choices. That just hasn't happened. And and Bluetooth just makes sense for it. I agree. If you're carrying your phone around the house, most people do. I know Stacey, you don't, but I think most people do. Or I do you have Bluetooth even... in like my Fitbit. Yeah, I was just going to say, it, but a we lot of people have, have Bluetooth in, in a wearable. Exactly. And it's a, and that's very personal because you're wearing that. You're not carrying it, you're wearing it. So I think this is a great idea. There is a bit of a downside because this is so new that it doesn't work with a ton of things yet. So it does work with some, but not all Philips Hue smart bulbs. It works with LifeX, original and mini smart bulbs, the Bose sound wireless speakers, and Ecobee. Yeah, which is a small list when you think about a product that is involved with, say, made for or works with Google or works with Madam A program. So I hope that the folks at Rumi are trying to get in to that program because then the whole world of products opens up. I would also say that the way this works is whoever sets this up becomes the room master. I, <laughs> I really like this title. I am the room master. I am the, what was it? The gatekeeper? The key master. Key master. Yes. There we go. Ghostbusters. Anyway, as the room master, whenever you enter the room, all settings will revert to your preferences. And when you leave, it will revert to the next highest ranked person in the room. Which Oh, that's a problem with the kids. Isn't that going to be Why is he ranked higher than me? <laughs> oh, lordy. I was going to say, that's going to be a problem with like the spouses. My husband will be like, why is it suddenly so hot in here? I'll be like, oh, it's so wonderful. Thanks, Ecobee yeah. and Rumi. Josh, this is your problem. I'm not owning this one because I'm not going to rank my kids. There you go. So, Josh, that is our solution for you. I wish we had something that worked with everything and was more comprehensive. There, but There is another option. Oh. I mean, aside from the motion sensors, which there are tons of motion sensor options, whether they're in a smoke alarm, whether they're in a light switch, or they're just a standalone sensor like the Fabaro eyeballs, there are tons of motion sensors out there, and they're pretty easy to automate. So that's not a problem, provided you have a hub in most cases. But just before the show, we also found this um, Minute product. Oh, yes. I forgot about the Minute product. Yeah. Now, we can't speak to how well it works because we literally just found out about it right before the show. But you've reached out to them already for getting some review units. Yes. This is a security product. It is a device that you slap onto a magnetic. You screw on a magnetic plate to your ceiling and you slap this sensor-packed puck to it. And it does motion, humidity, temperature. Noise detection. Noise. It has a siren. It, so it'll listen for window glass breakage as the uh, uh, Madam A guard does now. But it but doesn't have a camera. So the people who are focused right. on privacy are going to be kind of excited about this, I would think. So it Correct. reminds me kind of like maybe something that Comcast is probably thinking about, right? 
So it has all of these kind of neat features, plus it works with Madam A and Google Assistant, which means you might be able to, and I can't tell you until I've tried this, use the sensors in that to control things happening in your house. Again, it won't detect people. It detects movement, though. It Yes, it just doesn't detect individuals. Right. Each device is $149, and you can get a two-pack for $230. So I think this is kind of pretty sweet. It is security-focused for the most part, but it would meet the needs of motion detection or personal presence, well, presence in general in rooms, which is why we, we brought it up without a camera. That's, I think that's the key because a lot of people don't want cameras in every room of their house. Which I totally get. Yeah. All right. Well, Josh, hopefully this helps you and everyone else, please stay tuned because... We'll have our guest, Zach Zapala, who is the CEO of Particle. He's going to be talking about a survey they just released all about what industries are using IoT, what use industries aren't, and some of the lessons learned as companies scale out, which is a big deal. Before we get to that, we are going to hear from this week's sponsor, Dell Technologies. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Dell Technologies. And today we are joined by Brian Jones, who is a general manager for the OEM and IoT solutions division at Dell Technologies. Brian, I understand you were also recently asked to serve as one of the executive sponsors for Dell Technologies IoT and Edge business. Can you briefly share with us how your group is helping customers embrace IoT? Stacey, thanks for having me on. It's really great to have an opportunity to chat with you. So from an OEM perspective, we're really focused on, for our customers, helping them take their IP, combine it with our technology, and create a new product that they take to market. And our customers have been doing IoT since long before IoT had a name. And so we're kind of a natural place to help with the IoT and Edge division. And so what we do is we really help customers focus on and deliver three things. First, help them compress their time to market. So they focus on their IP. We focus on the technology platform and the integration of the two. The second piece is really delivering tier one technology. And that tier one technology gets them the very best quality and customer experience. And then the last piece is whether they're a multinational or they're a small software startup, we help them scale globally, reducing cost and complexity and taking their product to a global market. Excellent. And I understand that your division is pretty unique compared to what most of my audience thinks about when they think about Dell Technologies. They're thinking servers and PCs, but your division focuses more on factory floors than data centers. It's OT, not IT. Is that right? That's right. So a great example of an OEM customer is they're developing software or solutions that they're going to take to market. So a lot of CAT scans or medical devices, they're developing the software and the actual CAT scan device itself, but all of that needs to run on a server that's in a maybe a very hard um, operational environment, high temperature, dust, vibration. And so we help them develop the platform that they then integrate into their solution. They'll put their logo on it and they sell it out to their customer as their end solution. Okay. And so how does your OEM division really help those customers get ahead? So we are really focused on first, the IP that they're developing is at the center of the solution. And then we help them surround that IP with the right technology platforms. And we're drawing from all of Dell technologies. So not just Dell EMC and hardware, but also VMware, Pivotal, RSA, SecureWorks. 
Everything that makes up Dell Technologies is part of the palette that we can help a customer paint their product picture from. And so at the Dell Technologies level, we're able to bring the entire power of the company, hardware, software, services, program management, engineering, all of that together to create a net new product based on their IP and our technology that that customer then takes to market. Awesome. So where can folks go to learn more? So for more information and for some case studies on the solutions that we've helped our customers develop, go out to dellemc.com forward slash OEM. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and today's guest is Zach Sapala, who is the CEO of Particle. Hi, Zach. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm excellent. All right. We have not talked in, gosh, like a year or two, and I'm hearing that things are different at Particle. So let's kick it off Mm. with an update on where things are at Particle, and probably for everyone who doesn't know you guys, what you actually do. Yeah, absolutely. So backstory on Particle, we are an Internet of Things device platform. So we help companies who are making Internet of Things products connect those products to the internet. And we work with a bunch of different manufacturers and distributors, a lot of folks who made products that weren't yet connected and wanted to add connectivity to those products. We also work with a lot of entrepreneurs and startups who are building new products from scratch um, that incorporate connectivity. And we provide all of the connectivity, networking infrastructure, ranging from the hardware that's embedded inside the product to the networking stack to cloud services that expose devices through APIs and everything in between. And right now, your customers, I assume, span the gamut. So let's talk about, you recently did a survey where you asked about 800 developers, what they're using IoT for, how they're building stuff, and what did you find? Let's let's start with the top, probably, industries where it matters. Yeah, so we'll start with where I think IoT has, been, has become most successful. If we think about the markets that seem to be most excited about IoT, what we see is like manufacturing, healthcare, energy, agriculture, and then technology, which makes sense because, of course, any technology company is thinking about you know some way to engage with IoT. But I think what's interesting about that is okay, those industries make sense. It makes sense that you would see these sort of heavier industries with often more expensive products, with more like maintenance problems, that those would be places where we'd see IoT being successful. I think what's interesting is what's not on that list, which is to say consumer. And I think that consumer adoption of IoT has been weaker. There have been, of course, a number of like big breakout successes. But if you look more broadly across the industry, I think we're in a little bit of the trough and the hype cycle. I was like the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is to say, like there was this period where, and we were founded during that period, right? 2012 was like really the early days of IoT when things were really starting to take off and there was a lot of interest and excitement around consumer, but we're just not seeing that that's where the energy is today. And if we anecdotally, we see that with our customers where there are more and more we're helping to connect big, dirty, heavy machines where there's a lot of operational burden of sort of managing that piece of equipment. And there's people who have to deal with maintenance and uptime. And those create opportunities to solve real problems through IoT because you can say, well, if I can do a better job of making sure that this machine keeps working because I have sensors in the machine and I'm collecting data from the machine, that leads to various, very clear solutions to problems that 
mean that these initiatives actually get out the door and do actually scale. Yes, because I feel like in the consumer, even today, the use cases are not clear, the expense associated with connected devices is high, and Mm -hmm. the maintenance and ability to like make things work, pull something together is really mm-hmm. difficult because there's no standards. So yes. I'm, I'm with you on that. So let's talk about how those kind of trends relate to, I don't know if we wanted to break it out by industry because they may be a little bit different, but when we start, the use cases, very clear. A lot of the things that are happening have a, an ROI associated with them that's pretty easy to see. What about standards? Like how are like agricultural or manufacturing or healthcare companies buying these? Do they do they think about things working across many different platforms or do they just like, uh, I need something to monitor my drugs in refrigerators or I need something to track the placement of seeds in my fields? So I think it really ends up being a question of what environment is the product deployed in and how important is it that it work with other products in that environment. And so I'll use an example of like a factory, right? So a factory is a place where you have a whole bunch of machines all sitting next to each other. And some of the problems that you want to try and solve through IoT are about the interactions of those machines. So for instance, if I'm trying to, you know, make my manufacturing line more efficient and I want to be able to track sort of levels of like work in progress inventory as it moves through the line. I can't just have one machine presenting me that data. I need sort of all of the machines in the line to be giving me data. And then I have a problem of trying to figure out how to get all the data to make sense together. And so we think of that as a heterogeneous deployment, which is to say like lots of different IoT products interacting with one another. And that's where I think standards are really important. Now, I think to your, to your point, a lot of those standards haven't been settled and are still in development and there are standards wars that are going on. And that creates a challenge in many cases with successfully deploying heterogeneous IoT deployments. Most of where particles used is in homogenous deployments, which is to say, I make widgets and I make 100,000 widgets and they're all mostly the same and I deploy them all over the world. And in a lot of cases, those are standalone products. So for instance, we have a customer who's using us to monitor air conditioners. Air conditioners are Different air conditioners are a little different and there are residential units and there are commercial units, but the fundamental principles of how they operate are the same. And every air conditioner is is a standalone product. So when you're trying to, for instance, monitor the air conditioner, and if you want to be able to improve service and maintenance of the air conditioner, then you really only need data from that one device. And so standards and integrating with other machines and equipment isn't as important in that environment. Another example of this is we're working with a company that manufactures dental operatory equipment, so machines that are in dentist offices. And similarly, like they have machines, but they tend to be more standalone equipment, not as complex of an environment as a factory. And those are cases where we've seen products be successful getting to market because essentially you're not waiting on an ecosystem to develop. You have a product, it has a problem, you can solve that problem directly. And the fact that there is a continuing standards war in IoT doesn't really keep you from being able to go out and solve your own problems. Got it. Have you had any clients that have built out a homogenous infrastructure and then suddenly looked up and been like, oh, I really wish we could connect it to this thing, tried to move to the next level? And if you have, what has happened or what have they learned from that? What I see happening with 
those kinds of customers is they might say, wouldn't it be nice if all these other pieces of equipment around it are connected, but they're not, oh well, so I'll just keep trying to find other problems I can solve with this product on its own. And the downside is, of course, that that means that there are some interesting opportunities that are being left on the table. But on the other hand, what I find is that once people start shipping an IoT product, the things they can do with it the long-term opportunities start to become clear over time. Where, for instance, you might say, I make a widget, and the reason that I want to connect the widget is because the, the widget breaks, and I want to be able to fix it when it breaks. Okay, that's the justification for rolling it out. But then once it's out in market, I realize, well, you know what? The widget also uses filters, and those filters go bad over time, and I can track how much they're being used. And so now I can do an automatic fulfillment of consumables business. I can start sending people new filters every three months when the filter's bad, or not every three months, every time the filter needs to be replaced. And now I've got a new subscription business. And that's like the second stage of my IoT product. And then they start thinking about what are the third order opportunities where I can start to create, do something better for my customers. And there's enough juice there. There's enough extra things to go after once you launch an IoT product that it doesn't matter so much in many cases that you can't do the interesting things that require interacting with other devices because there's there's enough to go after. Like you're plenty busy, basically. Got it. And, and that makes sense. When it comes to the actual business use cases that people are deploying particle stuff in, it sounds like remote monitoring, there's a little bit of preventative or half are doing preventative maintenance, and then a third or so are doing asset tracking. Are there other use cases that you're seeing develop? The other use cases that we see happening, but they're less frequent are, so some kind of premium product for consumers, right? So this is the like, I make a widget, but I make a smart widget that's more compelling for some reason, and I sell it at a premium. That was less than 30% of customers were doing that. Then we have customers who use Particle to track consumables. So like replacing filters and replace, you know, detergent and like coffee uh, pods kinds of things. Those were less than 20%. And then the least common was regulatory and regulatory compliance. Huh, I would think that would be higher. So here's my, I think that those use cases are really strong, which is like, let's say that you are, you do natural gas extraction and you want to track methane emissions because the EPA regulates the quantity of methane. We do have customers doing that kind of thing with particle. And they are very compelling use cases because they're regulated in. And so you have to do that if you're in that, if you're in that business. And so I think that the fact that they represent a smaller number of customers is just reflective of the fact those might be great use cases, but they're only relevant in a handful of areas. Whereas monitoring an environment with sensors is something that's very broadly useful across a whole bunch of different industries and use cases. All right. So getting back to adoption and how people are scaling up from pilot to pre-production to production, you know, when I talk to people who are looking at this space and building prototypes, for example, they usually start with something like a particle or maybe it's a Raspberry Pi. And then at, at a certain point, like a thousand, maybe it's 10,000, they're like, well, crap, we need to move so to something else. So talk to me about what you're seeing in your customer base because you've got this, you know, you've got the cloud associated with it. So you're basically starting with particle and hopefully scaling all the way up. What does that process look like for your customers? So a lot of customers who start with Particle end up scaling with Particle. I think the reason that that's the case, and of course, that's how our 
business works, right? Our, we, we have a huge community of developers and engineers who are prototyping with Particle. And we make, you know, our business is really to support those companies as they bring products to scale. So I think if you are making the decision, you prototype with something like Particle and you're deciding whether to continue down that path or not. The question is, what is the strategic or economic reason that you would want to build these things in-house? And I think that there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between IoT infrastructure and web infrastructure, which is essentially about data centers versus the cloud. So 30 years ago, if you wanted to build a web application, you had to build a data center or set up some kind of infrastructure. And that means you're dealing with a lot of hard problems like getting real estate and construction and dealing with like temperature controls and replacing servers that go bad, none of which actually makes your product differentiated, right? It's just the table stakes to be able to build a web application that people use. And over time, AWS launched in 2006. And since then, you've got Microsoft and Google. And over time, more and more people have shifted to the cloud because essentially there is no good economic or strategic justification for most companies to build their own data centers. And there are exceptions to that, right? So Dropbox, for instance, spent $400 million building their own software infrastructure because what they needed to do was easier and more economical for them to deliver directly than using AWS. But they're the exception, not the rule. You even have massive consumers of web infrastructure like Netflix who are still hosted on AWS. And so there are exceptions. Dropbox is an exception, but most of the time, even large-scale web applications are hosted on the cloud because there isn't a good reason not to. And I think the same the same fundamental decisions are true for IoT infrastructure, which is that there aren't generally good strategic or cost reasons why somebody should build their own infrastructure in-house. It doesn't make your product better than somebody else's, so that's not there isn't good strategic value. Economically perspective, it might be cheaper on a unit basis, but if you include all the overhead necessary of managing and overseeing the infrastructure and the fleet of devices, then it doesn't make economic sense. And so what you're left with is the same reasons that caused people to be slow to adopt the cloud, even though the underlying value proposition was strong, which is really about trust, right? Which is, do you trust somebody else? Infrastructure for these products is super important, and do you trust somebody with that? And our job is to prove over time by supporting a lot of customers who are happy and successful in getting their products to market to sort of earn that trust. That's fair. And for a company that is looking at buying hardware in doing a prototype and then scaling up, where do you see the challenges for them? So your customers who are like, yeah, we've run a successful proof of concept and now we want to, to roll this out further. Where do they hit their road bumps? Some of the biggest challenges that one encounters when you're deploying an IoT product are different than what you expect them to be. When we asked customers about a bunch of different technical challenges and said, what have you found to be most challenging? The number one challenge was debugging unhealthy devices, which is to say, let's say you have a fleet of 100,000 devices that you've deployed out to customers. And generally speaking, they're working great, but there's like a thousand of them to 1% of your fleet that are misbehaving. Why are they misbehaving, right? So for instance, they might be having issues connecting to whatever the cellular tower is that's near them. They might have power management issues where they're not getting the necessary 3.3 volts to be able to, for the system to be able 
to behave reliably. They might have something wrong on the networking stack, so the secure connection between the device and the cloud isn't working. And if the experience that you have is just that 99% of your devices are sending messages, but 1% aren't, it can be really difficult to figure out why they're not, right? Any one of those problems could be the problem, but if the device is out in the world and you're just not hearing from it, it can be really tough to figure out what's going on. And so we've been building a bunch of features around what we call fleet health, which is providing more insight to our customers about when you have a device that's being finicky, what exactly is going on and what do you do about it? Those are the kinds of challenges when we talk to companies who have delivered a product that they say, this is the really hard stuff. Whereas if you ask customers before they deliver an IoT product, what's hard? That one might not be as obvious to them. The number two for us in terms of what we hear is, is most challenging and that we've built software to make easier is delivering software updates to the device. Reprogramming devices remotely creates a lot of opportunities for security risks or bricking devices. There's been way too many public cases of devices that got bricked through an over-the-air software update that went bad. And so it's another of these big technical challenges that we solve for customers to say, well, we've, we've tried to take the hardest bits and resolve them for you. There are other problems which I think are often presented as difficult, but if you ask customers or what we found in the survey is they weren't, they weren't as challenging. So for instance, data infrastructure, storing and collecting data, visualizing data, generating insights with data. We generally found that customers found this to be less difficult. And I think that's in contrast to of the something like 450 IoT platforms that exist in the world, really the vast majority of them, probably more than 400, are really focused on data and analytics. And what we find is that those aren't actually the hardest problems to solve. And I think the reason for that isn't that data is not hard. It's just because there's a lot of great products that already exist about solving problems with data that are relevant in IoT. You don't necessarily need like a specialist IoT product to go and solve those problems. Now, of all of the data problems, the one that we heard was most challenging was generating insight from data, which is to say not just collecting and storing and visualizing the data, but actually turning that into a solution to a problem. And I think that's generally true for any business with larger quantities of data is it's one thing to have the data. It's another thing to actually use it to solve a problem. And you see the same challenges in like every marketing product ever, right? It's like you get all this click data about what your customers are doing on your website, turning that into a thing to go do is the hard part. And so there is definitely opportunity there. And there are companies that have been successful in helping generate those insights. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that I found looking at these survey results is that some of the things that are often painted as being the hardest problems don't actually seem to be that way. And the hardest problems really tend to be more about this like nitty gritty infrastructure of fundamentally, how do you reliably connect 100,000 physical devices to the web so that you can regularly communicate back and forth with those devices? Zach, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 